0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the show. And today I'm thrilled to talk with Edward Westerman about his new book, Drunk on Genocide, Alcohol and Mass Murder in Nazi Germany. Ed is professor of history at UT San Antonio, and we talked a couple years ago about his book, Hitler's Ostkrieg and the Indian Wars, and you can find that uh, on the website for New Books and Genocide Studies. Um, And as I was thinking about this introduction, I was thinking about a story from a comparative genocide class I was teaching a couple years ago. Uh, And in that class, uh, a young female student of mine came up to me uh, before the class and said that said that she had tried to do the reading assignment, um, but in the middle of a a section on sexual violence, she had had to stop. And she threw the book against the wall, and she went for a long run to try and purge herself and try and manage the anger she had felt at the stories she was reading. And I was thinking about this story as I was reading Ed's book, book is a fascinating study of the way in which German soldiers, policemen, and civilians used alcohol as a way to prepare for, participate in, and celebrate massacres. And it's also a thoughtful analysis of what it meant to be a man in Nazi Germany, and how this understanding of masculinity shaped the choices of individuals and the cultures of German collectives. It made me think again about some of my ideas about the Holocaust and its perpetrators, But I have to say, it also left me wanting to throw the book against the wall sometimes. Ed is a good writer, and there's lots of anecdotes, and it's a hard book to read. But it's one that you should read, uh, and one I'm eager to talk about with Ed. So, Ed, thanks for being with us, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies.
0: Well, thank you, Kelly. It's, uh, it's a delight to be back here, uh, uh, as I've uh, talked before on my last book. Uh, I do need to say, though, I'm at uh, Texas A&M San Antonio, so I've got to make Oh, a, my mistake. I, that's
1: a big mistake, actually. <laughs> well, I've got I'm to glad that, that I'm several hundred miles away, because I'm <laughs> sure I've enraged several people, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> but uh, it's my pleasure to be here, and uh, I absolutely agree with you that this is a very difficult subject uh, to deal with, uh, and, uh, and to read about. Uh, but I do think it's an important subject, uh, based on what it tells us about the mindset of the perpetrators and also what it exposes about the reality, uh, of what the Holocaust really involved.
1: So I know you've been here before, but it's been a while. Can you just reintroduce yourself to the audience?
0: Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Ed Westerman. i uh Regents Professor of History at Texas A&M San Antonio. I uh, have been uh, teaching here uh, in San Antonio now for about 11 years. And my focus originally started on perpetrator studies, uh, looking at the German police uh, and evolved into comparative genocide and Holocaust and genocide studies uh, in general.
1: And so why this book at this time? What made you this uh, be your next project? This
0: book actually started off like uh, most of my book projects as, a, as an article, and uh, it actually came from my classroom teaching. Uh, one of the things that I try to do in the classroom uh, when I'm teaching uh, the Holocaust class is to rotate different books through uh, that I think might appeal to the students uh, and give them insights. And uh, over the course of a couple of semesters, I had used a uh, Father Patrick Dubois, The Holocaust by Bullets, and Wendy Lauer's uh, excellent book, uh, Hitler's Furies. And one of the things that, uh, as I was thinking about this over spring break uh, a number of years ago, was the use of alcohol in celebratory ritual that appeared in both of those books. And uh, that led me uh, to put together an article that uh, was eventually published uh, in uh, Holocaust and Genocide Studies. Uh, on uh, German perpetrators and the use of alcohol. So uh, stone-cold killers are drunk with murder. And that appeared in spring of 2016. And the more I started thinking about uh, and looking at at the topic of alcohol use, it was one of those topics that was hiding in plain sight. So there was a ubiquity uh, of alcohol use and the different ways in which uh, it was used. And so uh, that kind of started me thinking more and more about that. And then uh, subsequently uh, looking at some of the work on masculinity, especially Thomas Kuhn's work uh, and Alisa uh, 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 Mailender's work uh, as well. And so as I was thinking about uh, gender and masculinity involved in the Holocaust, this kind of added a dimension uh, that you mentioned earlier as you were speaking about the book. Uh, that allowed me to kind of think about the book in a in, in a different way, and so the uh, the book has been a progression uh, in that respect. In that respect, uh, it's been looking at how did German men view themselves, how did the perpetrators see themselves as men, but also how did they integrate this idea of intoxication, and not only the literal intoxication of alcohol use, but kind of the metaphorical intoxication of control of others.
1: So maybe the place to start is to ask you to say something, and you do this in your first chapter, say something about the intersection of drinking and masculinity in German culture. Um, what role did drinking play, and, and, and how did boys and men thinking about, think about drinking as they thought about who they were? Yeah, you know, one of the
0: interesting things for me that I think broadens uh, our range as historians uh, as we think about this topic uh, was as I was looking at you know this idea uh, we have this idea, can you hold your liquor and you see that in Western culture, the ability uh, to hold one's liquor as kind of a marker of masculinity uh, and that wasn't just German culture uh, as I talk about in the book uh, that extends into uh, that extends into Western culture uh, in general and uh, one of the things that uh, I was struck by is if you um, if you read uh, about uh, working class bars in New York City in the 1940s, I have Pete Hamill's uh, work at Drinking Life there where he talks about men are essentially uh, judged on their ability to drink and their ability to use their fists. And uh, if you start looking at the social sciences literature, uh, you can continue to see Uh, That that, in fact, uh, is a trend that one can identify whether we're in Australia, whether we're in Germany or whether we're in the United States uh, in the 20th century. And so as I kind of got into that uh, that discussion, uh, one of the things that it exposed is this uh, linkage between uh, drinking and drinking rituals, uh, male camaraderie and perceptions of masculinity, And for those who have been to college uh, and understand university uh, culture, for example, there's also an aspect of that, especially with respect to uh, fraternity culture. And uh, in the book, I talk about Peggy Sandé's work uh, on fraternity culture. And uh, one sees these connections between drinking, uh, masculinity, but also, uh, as you were talking about, a difficult book to read in your opening story. Uh, the intersection with sexual violence as well. So as I was looking at criminology, psychology, and sociology and some of that literature, uh, it really helped me to inform uh, this broader narrative about alcohol use that is not just period-specific, if you will, uh, to Germany in the 19th or 20th century, but I think has also broader implications uh, for other cultures and uh, and other genocides as well.
1: So you start your story with with the essay and, and the way it built community and a sense of identity, in part by uh through drink drinking culture with alcohol use and, and the beer hall as a location for um for companionship and and so on. Um, what what role did all how how did men or boys in the essay understand who they were and, and how does alcohol shape that sense of purpose and identity? Yeah, well I think you know in the
0: book um, uh, if you look at uh, if you look at discussions of masculinity um, uh, RW Connell and others have talked about this idea of hegemonic masculinity as kind of a marker of what masculinity is in other words there's a dominant narrative uh, for a, a, a social a social group or a, a society about what masculinity means and it's always posited against an opposite femininity in this case um, and it's not it it's not a hegemonic narrative in terms of it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't mean that that's the only way of thinking about it, and it can be malleable. But when I look at the Third Reich, I use the term, and and others uh, had used the term of hypermasculinity, and the extreme nature of the gender roles, uh, and the extreme focus on race and procre- uh, procreation, if you will. I, I think really discerned for me, and manliness in terms of militarized masculinity, which I think is really a a a key concept uh, that ties in with hypermasculinity. This militarized masculinity uh, that also uh, emerges in the Third Reich, especially, and even before the Third Reich in these groups like you're talking about, uh, the paramilitaries of the Nazi Party, the stormtroopers, and then later the SS, uh, create this kind of dominant narrative of what it means uh, to be a man. And that's tied to hardness. That's tied to toughness. Uh, that's tied to uh, willingness to use violence. Uh, that's tied also uh, to an individual's ability to be hard, and including the ability to drink. And so, for me, this idea of hypermasculinity within this hypersexualized kind of uh, 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 atmosphere of the Third Reich, with these really, really strict gender norms, uh, and uh, to me, that really started to explain uh, how some of these younger men. Uh, and then uh, as they grew older and are socialized in the period, uh, how they ca- came to accept some of these values or these, uh, these ideals. Uh, and I think that that really uh, became uh, something that uh, allowed me to see them in the way they saw themselves. And the book uh, provides me with uh, some ways of looking at specific examples of that kind of behavior, uh, especially what I call performative masculinity. So those who compete against one uh, one another, either with respect to drinking, the ability to beat uh, a concentration camp prisoner better than the other, the ability to outshoot uh, their uh, their colleague, and so you 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 see many many manifestations uh, of this kind of masculine behavior uh, that I think uh, really highlighted uh, for me uh, the mindset of some of these perpetrators.
1: You talk, you you introduce in that chapter, and then you come back to it occasionally, this idea of a fellowship evening. what What is that? Yeah, I
0: think uh, fellowship evenings are, are really important uh, when we start to think about how do you build social camaraderie. So in Germany in the period, if we go before the period of national socialism, one would find uh, in places like Hamburg or Berlin, uh, you find these uh, pubs that are dominated, normally they're associated with a given political party, they become normally mel, normalized male spaces. Uh, and uh, they're used uh, to create a sense of camaraderie, but they're also used for political mobilization. So they become self kind of selecting islands, if you will, uh, in, these, in, in these urban areas. And uh, they become points of identification uh, for individuals. And what I saw uh, in looking at uh, this process was this is a process that takes place under Weimar. Uh, it takes uh, place uh, in the Third Reich especially. But these sites become sites of masculine camaraderie where they become male-only spaces. In the book, for example, I talk about the stormtrooper. Uh, pubs and women aren't allowed in those uh, normally and and so they're they're kept out of those spaces if they are allowed for a a, a given event then the men can drink alcohol but the women can drink uh, cola uh, soft drinks or uh, or water right so we start to again see how these spaces are used but what's really interesting is the number of discussions where uh, you have this kind of uh, militarized masculinity, these meetings, this camaraderie that's building up, and then how these groups then leave uh, these pubs and then uh, essentially engage in violence against their their political enemies, go looking for trouble, if you will, uh, or go on these punitive expeditions. So I really thought that that was interesting because normally uh, when we've talked about uh, these fellowship evenings, Uh, Jordan Mateus did some really uh, good work looking at the police and the SS. But what uh, if you move backwards? What you see is actually the stormtroopers before Hitler and the Nazis take power. This is a dynamic that we see uh, already in the 1920s and early 1930s, and it's a
1: dynamic that will carry over uh, into the Third Reich. How, how intentional are these? In other words, are these? I don't want to say spontaneous, because it can become a cultural norm to gather in a space and to behave in a way, but to what extent are the leaders of these organizations as they're trying to build up a sense of community and political allegiance, creating uh, spaces and times for fellowship intentionally as a way to cement the political allegiance? And to what extent does it just happen, I don't know, again, spontaneously, organically is maybe a better word. No, I, I definitely
0: think uh, that your your first point there's uh, there's malice of forethought, I would say, in other words, uh, that they definitely uh, intend to use these spaces for that type of mobilization, that type of camaraderie building, and maybe you know, uh, in the twenty first century, uh, we we lose a little bit of uh, we lose a little bit of our perspective on that. Uh, for example, not everyone has neighborhood bars anymore, right? Uh, Now, if we go back to Weimar, Germany, a lot of people don't even have cars, right? So you have to think about what male behavior looks like in that period. And it's tied very closely to different kinds of clubs at different uh, points in German history, athletic clubs, for example, uh, the Burschenschaften, right? These student fraternities uh, that uh, create this identity that's also uh, very much tied to German nationalist thought and drinking. Uh, so i think what happens is as we think about it in our terms right a lot of times we lose track that this would these would be the uh, the sites or, or locales that men would gravitate to to be amongst their comrades who thought the same way or maybe had been uh, ex-soldiers uh, after world war 1 who had those kind of politi- that kind of political mindset uh, and then these can be used right these can be leveraged uh, by those uh, seeking to uh, create uh, political power or, uh, or, or to mobilize individuals for their cause.
1: You talk in the next chapter about rituals of humiliation. Um, so, so that's an interesting phrase. So, so I'll ask you to explain that phrase, rituals of humiliation, and then say something maybe about why humiliation was so prevalent and so important.
0: Yeah, the, the uh, what was striking one of the striking things in looking uh, uh, at this project as I was writing it uh, was that uh, humiliation and uh, this ritualized or staging uh, uh, of uh, humiliation was very important uh, to perpetrators, especially in the East. Uh, so what you would see, and we all know from uh, the reading that we've done in the field is everybody's probably familiar with seeing pictures of Jewish men having their, uh, uh, having their beards cut or or having their side locks cut off. Uh, and so we see, we see those, that dynamic, but then when you start looking at it, you start asking the question, okay, well, what, uh, what function, uh, do rituals serve? And, and rituals are bonding for the group. Uh, and I think that that's really important because rituals establish norms uh, for expected behavior or at least allowable behavior uh, within with within the group. And uh, the two uh, uh, as I kind of mentioned earlier, I think there's two forms of intoxication that are important to look at here. Uh, one is literal intoxication, so being drunk for example, or uh, uh, having having uh, had alcohol, consumed alcohol, and then being engaged in acts or using it as a celebratory accompaniment, but there's also this metaphorical intoxication of control over the other. And I think that that's really uh, the more profound sense of intoxication that we see, having power over others. And we see this even before the war, uh, especially in the concentration camps. And these rituals, whether it's welcome beatings, whether it's nighttime uh, forays into uh, prisoner barracks, which you can read about, uh, they predate the war and they predate the Holocaust. And so we see in the mindsets of the, of the perpetrators, again, this kind of enjoyment uh, or pleasure or amusement that's taken in the debasement of others. And, and again, I think that that's an important insight. Uh, into thinking about how the perpetrators themselves uh, are seeing their role uh, in these actions,
1: you talk about or you mentioned Tedra Aika and Dachau and kind of the origin of the concentration camp system. Um, to what extent I, I guess I'll go kind of repeat or follow up on the earlier question to what extent is this are these ritual humiliations taught? Um, and to what extent do they just emerge um, sporadically, or locally, or organically? Well, yeah, that's a that's a great question.
0: Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. But uh, I think what ICA is effective in doing is essentially uh, this school of violence, right? Schooling for violence. Uh, this idea of creating. A mindset amongst those SS guards in the camp that this is the way uh, that you're uh, that you should act, and one sees that not only amongst uh, amongst men but also amongst female guards. And for example, there's a uh, there's a quote uh, that uh, that uh, a new female guard is told SS guard is told by her supervisor, "Hot sein oder hot werden," and what that translates is, uh, to is uh, either be hard or become hard, right? And so this this idea that when you're dealing with these uh, putative enemies of the state, that there is no room uh, for pity, and that uh, one's hardness can be expressed in these acts, these uh, acts of humiliation, acts of beating, uh, acts of murder, is a reflection then of the individual's own uh, own toughness. And then that ties us, directly back, as I was talking earlier, to these perceptions of masculinity, especially in these SS uh, paramilitary groups. And one continues to see that uh, as uh, we think about the Einsatzgruppen, the murder squads that go into the East. One sees the same reflection uh, of this uh, need or this belief amongst the minds of the perpetrators that one has to do these types of things to demonstrate one's toughness.
1: You use a really striking word choice and, as you move on in the book, and you talk about taking trophies, uh, which the, the content of this section was not a surprise to me, but thinking about them as trophies was really enlightening. So, so what do you mean by trophies, and, and what, what, what things constitute trophies, and, and, and what do they do with them? yeah the trophies and the taking of trophies
0: uh for example looking at photographs uh and we know that uh, one of the things that's kind of unique if you will about the german military uh and german forces in the east is millions of them uh carry cameras with them to the east and that's something that in our present day uh you know with everybody having an iphone or everybody having their uh, their device that they take maybe hundreds of pictures some people a, a day But what uh, some of uh, your listeners might uh, might not readily know is that in that time you might only have a roll of film with twenty pictures on it or twenty four, and so what do you take pictures of? I always talk to my students about. And in a world uh, in the nineteen thirties and nineteen forties, you have a limited option uh, as to what you're going to take pictures of. You can't just delete and retake. And so you have these you have these perpetrators uh, who take pictures of Their conquest of the East. Uh, And when you see some of those pictures, the trophy photos that uh, that we're talking about uh, can be atrocity photos, what we would consider to be atrocity photos, photos of dead bodies, photos uh, of individuals being hanged, for example, in addition to the landscape photos that they're taking, in addition to the photos that they're taking uh, with their comrades in the East. But one of the interesting things about these types of photos that you find, and you find this in Soviet war investigations uh, during the war and after the war, uh, is that uh, many of these photos are carried, for example, uh, in the blouse pockets of the perpetrators. So they're used, they're readily available. They're not put into albums necessarily, although many are. uh, But these types of photos are carried on the person to be pulled out and can be shown Uh, To new members who come into the unit, as kind of this this socialization, if you will, uh, of the new members, and this kind of pride uh, in the actions of the individual, and I think that that's really uh, uh, that's really not only the fact that they took the photos, but how they carried them uh, is really an important uh, indicator again uh, into the way they were attempting to display uh, their own activities, but their own uh, toughness. Now. With respect to uh, some of the photos, some of them are of a pornographic nature in terms of uh, they show women in various states of dress or undress at some of these killing sites. And so we also get, uh, uh, we also see this, uh, this additional kind of aspect uh, to the male gaze, the perpetrator's gaze uh, of, of women. And uh if we look at some of the other types of trophies that are taken, they can, be, uh, they can include articles of clothing, they can include the personal effects, uh, 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 money, if it were, uh, watches, whatever the case might be of the victims. And so again, uh, some of these effects then are then sent back in packages through the German uh, Feldpost or German military mail uh, to loved ones. Uh, to family members, and, and again, I think what we're starting to see with the, as we kind of look at all of this together uh, is uh, we really get this uh, metaphorical intoxication uh, of the uh, of the perpetrator uh, and the way that these uh, that these articles are being used to include in some cases, uh, as I talk about with sexual violence, to include in some cases the underwear of the victims and those types
1: of things. Yeah you mentioned that that they would be shown to to newcomers in the unit are are, are they shown when they go on leave at home um and is this uh, out of a sense of pride or to create a shared kind of complicity or or do they simp- or is this something that is mostly kept on the front and and kept from or away from the home front
0: no that's a again that's a very important question and many of them do when they go on leave they do carry these photos back What's also interesting is in many cases, these photos, these film rolls are not developed at the front. You can imagine that there's limited availability to do that. So they're actually sent back to, uh, uh to the home front. Uh, and, uh, one of the things that you'll also see is on the back on the verso of many of these photos, there's numbers on them or on the, uh, on the front when they're in albums. And the reason there's numbers on them is because, uh, the perpetrators and the unit members will say, well, I want a copy of number four. And so you have somebody who, uh, who, who is the uh, phot- photographer and he might have 20 orders for number four, 15 for number six. Right. And so you see that, uh, uh, in, in this case, that uh, in fact uh, many of these uh, are reproduced uh, uh, photos, and they find their way back to the units themselves, and the members then uh, then have copies from other members. So this this velocity of exchange, if you will this this exchange of these exchange of photos, I think is also really kind of a fascinating thing, because as your question uh, as your question brings up. Uh, it's being viewed by the members uh, the person who took the photograph by members who want copies but by those who actually develop the photos by those who then at home who send the photos to the unit member uh, and say okay your 15 uh, your 15 copies of this photo are enclosed in this mail so we see that in fact right uh, that uh, that this is one way uh, indirectly that we can see a broader cognizance of some of these acts among the German, uh, uh, among the German uh, public, which I think is an important insight.
1: Okay. I got to ask, is this against the rules? It seems like that would be against the rules. Yeah. The German or German
0: military regulations. It's absolutely against the rules. And one of the things, uh, it's like excessive drinking that I talk about uh, in the book. So There are multiple uh, uh, prohibitions that are issued by the German military, by the SS, especially by Himmler, uh, and local SS and police commanders do not take photos of these events. Uh, It's expressly prohibited. And uh, the number of prohibitions that you see uh, is one indication of the fact that it's happening and they can't stop it. Uh, The same thing with, uh, for example, uh, prohibitions on drinking that are issued uh, multiple times in multiple units. Uh, One uh, case I talk about where it's supposed to be issued every week that you're not supposed to drink on duty, right? So the only reason you have to issue that every week is because people are doing it. And so what one sees is that um, these prohibitions uh, in the East, especially uh, this idea of the zone of exception, uh, if you will, that you see that they're widely ignored. Uh, and I think that, uh, again, that ties back uh, to this uh, intoxication of power over others. And that this zone of exception uh, is where German men especially, but in some cases, German women as well, uh, have the ability to do things uh, and to, to act in ways uh, that would not have been allowed, for example, in Germany proper. Or even if we look at, the distinction between what's happening in the uh, western occupied territories and the eastern occupied territories, we see uh, we see a distinction uh, between actions in those two areas as
1: well. You mentioned sexual violence earlier, and you've got a chapter on that. and And my sense from reading the chapter is that sexual violence, at least in the east, was was far more common far more common than we might have. Suspected years ago, is am I right? And 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 why is this so? Yeah, that's uh, uh, you're absolutely right.
0: If we, if you and I had been having this conversation 20 years ago, kind of the standard historiography was that well, you know, that was considered to be racial defilement. So of course, uh, German troops would have been pub, uh, punished, especially uh, SS and police troops would have been published. Uh, excuse me, uh, punished for uh, being involved. Uh, In these types, uh, in these types of acts. And then we had uh, literally a generation of uh, female historians, largely female historians who started to uh, look at sexual violence. Regina Molleweiser is one, Beckett Beck, uh, Rochelle Seidel, uh, Helena Sinreich, for example, just to just to use some names. Uh, As they started to look at this, what we what we really found was that, in fact, that sexual violence was prevalent. Uh, especially uh, in the East, against both Slavic women and Jewish women. And this is kind of a paradigm change uh, in our understanding uh, of what was happening uh, in the East. And I quote in the book an SS and police uh, court review that estimates that over 50 percent of SS and policemen had been involved uh, in what would be known as uh, uh, racial defilement, in other words, sexual assault. Against Slavic or Jewish women, so it's very, very clear from uh, uh, from the records, and as we start to look at testimony uh, of survivors and witnesses as well, uh, that this is a widespread, uh, widespread act. And I think again, uh, uh, Patrick Dubois' book, "The Holocaust by Bullet." Uh, as we look at what Ukraine, Ukrainian witnesses they remember, for example, how uh, members of the Einsatzgruppen would take. Uh, Jewish women and use them as sexual concubines. And if they moved out or the women got pregnant, they would just be executed. Uh, And again, this idea of uh, how the perpetrator saw these women uh, as disposable uh, kind of sexual objects, if you will. Uh, We see that also to a certain degree in the Wehrmacht, uh, the the, uh, widespread use of sexual assaults. We also, you know, uh, found that we knew it before, uh, and one of the things that I think is important to say about historiography or, or the sources that one uses here uh, is in fact that if we look at some of the uh, Soviet uh, sources uh, directly after the war, the so-called uh, black books, uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the investigations uh, that are taking uh, place, uh, one sees very clearly sexual violence is noted. Uh, in witness uh, and survivor testimony uh, right after the war or even during the war that this is part and parcel uh, of the German occupation regime. So uh, uh, it is a definitely one of those things that uh, I think you're absolutely right that uh, we are now more cognizant of the scope and scale of it than we were uh, in previous years.
1: So I'll just briefly pause to note, as you may hear, some of the listeners may hear. I'm doing this interview in my office, and um, <clears throat> it appears that the uh, lawn services company that mows Newman's Lawn changes its schedule. I would say weekly, but it seems like hourly. So if you hear a lawnmower in the background, it is in fact the lawn services. I it doesn't sound too loud to me, so I hope it is not uh, distracting. But um, But back to the book. Um, What about rape of men or sexual violence against men? How prevalent is that? Yeah, that uh, it's there. Uh,
0: It's it's there, but it's also, I think, much more difficult to get at. And one of the one of the things that prevented uh, maybe an understanding of the uh, of the scope and scale of sexual violence uh, after uh, after the war was that. That was not a subject that, for example, survivors uh, wanted to talk about or were comfortable uh, uh, talking about. and it was probably not a a, a subject that, for example, uh, interviewers were comfortable asking questions about. And so what we ended up ha- what ended up happening in many cases for some of that testimony, it was kind of elliptical uh, that uh, it would be uh, it would be stories about something happening to someone else or that something terrible happened uh, to me, uh, you know, when they came and nobody wanted to ask, well, what did that mean for a very obvious reason? And I think it even becomes more difficult uh, to get to the idea of violence, sexual violence against males uh, for some of the same, uh, for some of those very same reasons. Now, where we do see that, for example, is when we look at uh, sources that deal with SS and police uh, judicial records. so those who uh, those who have been accused of um, uh, of uh, sexual assault against males, for example, you see that discussion uh, in some of those uh, in some of those cases. but it's much more difficult to get it. But my feeling uh, is uh, that in fact that, Like sexual assault against women, it's certainly it's certainly there, Uh, but uh, our source base to get into that discussion is more difficult. And I have a couple of instances where uh, I uh, I talk about what I have found in the records related to that. But again, it's still a little bit, uh, uh, it's still uh, much more difficult to get at based on what we have for sources.
1: And of course, if you exist on a college campus today, you will have. read about the intersection of alcohol and sexual violence. Um, So much of the, many of the anecdotes or many of the the examples you provide in that chapter are examples of soldiers who are drunk or in the process of becoming drunk or who are drinking. So what is, I guess the question is, is alcohol simply an accompaniment or or was there a culture of alcohol and sexual violence that existed in German culture before the war that makes this a natural pairing? Or what what is the relationship between alcohol and sexual violence?
0: Well, I definitely think that there's a, the process of uh, disinhibition that comes with alcohol. And I call this, when I speak with my students, I call it the spring break effect. So what makes you jump off your third story? balcony into the hotel pool uh, at three o'clock in the morning. uh, Why does that sound like a good idea? Well, it certainly didn't sound like a good idea, probably at eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, But, you know, a day of drinking and then somebody then somebody dares you. Right. So you get this kind of idea of masculinity. Are you tough enough to do this? And you do things like that. I, I definitely think that a disinhibition is one role uh, that we see uh, that we see with alcohol uh, that leads to some of this violence, but also I think uh, what's interesting about that, and this is where looking at fraternities or talk about rugby teams, could talk about football teams, uh, is this idea of group camaraderies expressed through the act of drinking, but it can also then uh, it can also then change into acts of group uh, sexual violence, where we see. For example, Fraternity, as I talked about uh, Peggy Sande's work again, where she uh, talks about it wasn't just about the group drinking, but uh, the idea of, uh, of group sexual assault or gang rape uh, was also a way uh, to prove one's uh, admittance to the group and one's uh, adherence to the group standards and one's ability uh, to perform within the group, and what's really striking about that is that's that's something we can see also. For example, the Japanese military there are uh, there are cases uh, where there's one Japanese soldier that talks about when he was allowed to participate uh, with uh, the members in a gang rape uh, that that's when he knew he belonged to the group, and so I think you know again uh, alcohol uh, can help to cross this uh, disinhibition threshold, but also what's really striking about its use is when it's used to facilitate, in other words, when it's celebratory. Uh, When, for example, uh, I talk about uh, a group of SS men, they're celebrating uh, New Year's Eve. And so like most of us, uh, uh, probably who drink, uh, New Year's Eve is a time when one toasts in the new year. Uh, and drinking can be uh, rather heavy for some individuals during that uh, that period. But what I find really striking is when this, this group then decided it's the new year, they've been drinking, so what is it that, that they want to go do to start off the new year? And in this case, they want to go into the nearby Jewish ghetto, and they want to start the new year doing what they've done uh, the rest of the time, which is go find and kill Jews. And so... We see also how alcohol can be used in this facilitation of violence, kind of what I talked about with the SA pubs as well, that now it's used as a way to kind of celebrate what you've done and to go be part of more uh, and to do more. And we see some of this same, uh, this very same actions during uh, the night of broken uh, glass, so-called Kristallnacht program within Germany in, in November 1938 so i think that that's really important to 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 when we talk about the use of alcohol to look at the way the multifunctionality that alcohol plays amongst the perpetrators uh, of violence as well
1: yeah and excuse me that's actually where i was going to head next because of course the next big question is what role does alcohol play in the behavior or the culture of killing and so i guess if i had asked this question a decade before, I probably would have assumed that it was a way to forget or a way to um, enable one to do something that you found distasteful. Um, that seems an inadequate answer based on your book. So, so maybe I'll just give you a, a kind of a big broad question and say, so what what role, how do we think about alcohol and mass murder? Yeah, that's I think you're getting
0: to the heart of one of the things, if I had to say, what's a key contribution uh, of this work to the historiography? You're a- absolutely right. If we think about, you know, Chris Browning's uh, Pathbreaking Ordinary Men and Police Battalion 101, uh, the idea that. um that comes out of much of the standard historiography or the paradigm of alcohol use is the only way that people uh, could be involved in these kinds of actions was to drink. And you have the uh, picture of the perpetrator often who, after being involved in these killing actions, their drinking then is described as, coping mechanism so you have the idea of a of a guy with his head down on the on the bar who's uh, who's drunk himself kind of into oblivion to kind of forget what uh, he was involved with uh, that day and in fact uh, that is a dominant uh, that is a dominant narrative in much of the descriptions uh, in the literature that deal with drinking and i think this book really complicates that picture uh, because certainly coping is one uh, is one aspect of drinking and disinhibition, the idea that someone needs uh, the so-called pejorative Dutch courage, right, uh, going into battle. If you drink before, now you have now you have this ability to uh, to go out there and fight. But I think what we see uh, is that uh, this uh, this celebratory use, this uh, use of alcohol uh, as an accompaniment. Uh, as a kind of joyful accompaniment to mass murder in some cases uh, is really striking, and we see that uh, in cases of uh, perpetrators uh, who are on a uh, uh, on a uh, on a sleigh uh, and they have these uh, these Jewish men that are acting as beaters to 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 drive game in front of them uh, uh, to drive these rabbits in front of them, and they're not really getting much uh, they're not really finding much uh, having much luck hunting uh for uh for these for this game so what do they decide to do well one of them uh, they're drinking uh singing they decide to start shooting uh the jewish men acting as the beaters to bring the game out and you have women who are uh who are at this side as well and so for me that's an that's a that's a perfect idea of performative masculinity men who are enjoying this hunt right but then they've changed their objective uh, from looking at uh, looking at uh, the game that they were supposedly uh, after and now killing Jews. Right. And that's one, uh, that's one example. But for example, the idea uh, that uh, those who uh, used alcohol after the fact, so I talk in the book about a restaurant uh, and a young Polish girl who was a, uh, who was a waitress there remembered how several times a week, Uh, This group of perpetrators would come back, and they were coming back from a killing operation. And what they would do is they would sit down, uh, they would eat, uh, they would drink, they would uh, sing. And she also talks about how they would stage chariot races, where the perpetrators would be seated in their chair and have a comrade uh, race them around the table competing against uh, uh, other other males in, in that group. And this is happening not once, but multiple times. Uh, And she remembers it. Uh, She also remembers the unwanted sexual advances of those uh, German men as well, those German perpetrators as well. But that's much different uh, than the idea, right, of someone coming back from a killing action and just slamming down shots until they kind of pass out and cry in their beer. And uh, this to me also is reflected... Uh, strikingly uh, in uh, testimony by some of the witnesses and the idea of what's known as the, uh, uh, this Yiddish uh, uh, language of destruction, that these killings are discussed in terms of a wedding atmosphere or a ball. Uh, so I think if we place ourselves in the perspective uh, of someone who's in a small village uh, or a shtetl, uh, in the 1940s and the East, what's the one day that is going to be the most joyous day uh, of the year? And that's going to be uh, a wedding, which is probably going to cost the individuals uh, the equivalent of many times of what they would make uh, in a year. So the idea here is that, they're, uh, that if the witnesses describing the perpetrators in that way, that it's like a wedding atmosphere for them, I think that really gives us an insight uh, into what they were seeing, and also uh, how they were interpreting uh, interpreting uh, the acts of the perpetrators themselves.
1: Yeah, and you focus on alcohol, but food shows up here too. And and I noticed you you cited some stories from a book I've taught. Um, I think I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right, but Rita Gabis or Gabis, a guest at the shooter's banquet. And you talk about food and banquets and the way that killings were punctuated or interrupted or, or culminated with feasts. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that to me was uh, really another kind of
0: um, fascinating thing to think about in terms of uh, the ability to stand uh, at the edge of a gravesite, shoot people, uh, and then take uh, breaks not only to have a a glass of schnapps or a shot of schnapps or a beer but to sit down at a table and to eat uh and to think about what that means psychologically uh is one thing but there's also a real physiological aspect to that that I think is is interesting because um one of the uh, one of the works that uh, kind of struck me in that respect was uh, some of the uh, Listeners may be familiar with the film, The Act of Killing, uh, which uh, uh, Joshua Oppenheimer directs uh, this uh, movie uh, that looked at perpetrators of killing uh, in Indonesia in 1965. And there's one of the perpetrators, uh, in, in fact, the, the head perpetrator that's being interviewed. And, and there's a scene where he's on this, uh, this rooftop balcony, and it's actually the murder site where he would kill groups of uh, alleged or suspected communists and he would uh, he would strangle them with wire uh, and as he's talking uh, as he's talking and recounting how he used to do this one of the remarks is he made is i had to kind of change the procedure he's quite proud of and he he said because it was really bloody when we first did it and the smell of blood is really nauseating. and it really makes you sick And what one finds in looking at uh, some of the testimony uh, in investigations of some of the killers uh, and some of the witnesses is they talk about the smell of death, this kind of uh, horrific uh, kind of smell uh, that one has, uh, that one experiences at at these sites. Now, to think about that, right, you have a physiological barrier uh, that uh, you have to overcome. And again, it talks to the normalization of the process of murder, something that we would not think about. So, when you have killers saying now they could, you know, uh, uh, I have an example where one of the guys just sits down on a body of a Jewish woman and eats his sandwich, uh, uh, you know, as a break. Uh, if you can take sour milk uh, as a, uh, in, you know, as a, a, as a break in the middle of this killing, I think it really again. Uh, helps us see these sites in a different way and how how this murder is normalized by uh, by the killers. And if you include things like music uh, at some of the sites, which I, I found uh, really fascinating in terms of how often music is included uh, and uh, the way it's used, I think that that, again, really gives us more insights into the nature uh, of the mindset of those involved.
1: So I'd like to pull back and just ask a, a few broader Questions as, as as our time is coming to a close. And the first one, I guess, the first one is a simple question. Uh, you talk about alcohol. What about other drugs? Uh, are they using other drugs? Cocaine. Uh, I, I don't. I, there, there's this this well-known book by Norman Norman Oller, uh, uh Blitz, um, where he makes um, a lot of uh, arguments about drug use. What What's your sense of, of about whether these soldiers are using other drugs? Yeah. The,
0: again, that's a, I think that's a that's a great question because uh, Oler's work, uh, as you talked about, Blitz uh, made a, a huge impact. I think it was a very popular read. One of the things that uh, I emphasize in the book that alcohol is neither necessary nor sufficient to explain the Holocaust. That the Holocaust would have happened without alcohol. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, but uh, I do think that there uh, there's a danger uh, in saying that uh, that. Uh, alcohol or drugs in this case uh, is what caused something to happen because uh, it, it, it's too simplistic and it also, uh, it also can be used as a way to kind of excuse behavior uh, and uh, many, for example, if you look at some of the perpetrators who are uh, accused uh, in court proceedings or in investigations after the, after the war, the way they explained their ability to be involved was that they were drunk. And uh, it makes sense because and as in U.S. law, uh, your level of intoxication can be seen as a mitigating factor to some actions that you're involved in. And that's the same uh, in the case of Germany uh, at, at this time during the war and subsequently after the war as well uh, in West Germany. So the use of alcohol is kind of an excuse and a kind of an alibi I think is a very uh, uh, is a is something that uh, needs to be reflected as we think about this. Now, the other thing that I would say is uh, Himmler issues multiple multiple uh, prohibitions against alcohol use. I have not seen one document where he talks about the use of pervitin or methamphetamine supplements or narcotic drugs among the SS and police. So, I think that that's really. A, that's the dog that didn't bark if you will uh, uh because the fact that he's not talking about that uh and you don't see that uh, represented uh tends to me to show that certainly within the SS and police complex that that is not uh, a major issue uh for the policeman and the SS member
1: yeah i was actually going to ask about that so uh, so this question in my mind started with the question is drunkenness punished and and broadens out to you know, when I was in grad school, the the image of the German military I was taught was one of efficiency and order and discipline. And your book suggests something very different from that. So so what what does this what does your studies show us about the German military as a whole and how it worked? Yeah, I think that uh, what
0: we see uh, is that uh, the German military and uh, David Stahill and others, uh, Rob Citino and others, have done some really great work on looking at uh, the German military, especially in the East, uh, is that we see that it's a um, it's a it's an organization uh, that has multiple manifestations of beha- behavior. And Waitman Born, for example, uh, book, Marching into Darkness, looked at Uh, a particular unit, and how even at the company level, so we're talking groups of 100, 150, uh, 300 men, how in fact that behaviors can be differential based on the organizational leadership, but I also think it's also based on the chronology, the time, and location. So as we start to complicate our understanding about, uh, about a unit or about an organization that was upwards of 18 million men, over the course of the war, when we're talking about the Wehrmacht, I think what we see is that we have to really look at the particular time, the particular place, the role of leadership. And uh, we see that uh, the different dynamics of different units is much different. Uh, And so that uh, we can't really generalize about uh, behavior, uh, for example, across the Wehrmacht. But I do think we can make generalizations about behavior in certain areas, for example, on the eastern front versus the western front. I do think we start to we start to have uh, we start to have insights that we can make uh, about organizations in those areas, and it ties back again, right, uh, to the if we if we use uh, Wolfgang Wipfhamans and Mick, uh, Michael Burley's uh, the racial state, uh, this idea of how the East is viewed as an other area. Uh, and, uh, I think Wendy Lauer's book, uh, for those women who traveled East to get it back to, to, thinking about gender perspective, many of them see the East in that same way, right? Uh, uh this is, uh, uh, this helps us to explain, I think some of the uh, behaviors that we see that in the East, um, uh, give us insights, uh, again, to how things were done, uh, that may, uh, that may give us a different perspective on, uh, larger organizational behavior.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask about women and gender. Uh, and, and I had Wendy Lauer on the show oh. when that book came out and, and had an interesting discussion with her. Do women in the East drink? Do women do, is, is the perception if they do drink, that that makes them more masculine somehow? Um, I know that you talk a lot about, um, sex, uh, uh, German men and women having sex and talking talk about orgies. Um, what, what, how, what can you say about women and their participation in this culture, whether as, um, as, um, active participants in the drinking culture or, or as objects of the drinking culture?
0: Yeah, I think what we see, for example, in, uh, if we look at, uh, the, uh, the concentration camps, uh, and, uh, the, uh, the killing centers, uh, in the East, uh, is uh, there are, for example, at Auschwitz and Majdanek, there are SS female guards, for example. We know that. Uh, and what's really interesting uh, about uh, about that, to give you kind of an insight into in, into gender roles in that respect, is that women in Germany proper SS guards are, are not issued a pistol uh, because a firearm is a male prerogative. Uh, if we go to Majdanek and we look at Auschwitz, we do see uh, that uh, SS guards, female SS guards do have pistols, but the way they use them is to beat the prisoner, often pistol whip them, uh, not to shoot them. And so one of the things we start to see is how these, how these gender roles start to get uh, defined, especially between uh, SS female guards and SS male guards. And I talk about uh, in the book, there's an example where a male guard uh, is, uh, is uh, flogging a female prisoner and a, a female SS guard actually grabs the uh, uh, the uh, the whip away from him and says, "You're not doing it right." And so she starts to inflict uh, 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 inflict this beating on this woman. And what was really interesting to me uh, is that here again we're seeing that zone of exception. So what that female SS guard is doing is she's not she's not using the standard uh, of the female. In Germany, as her standard for action, she's adopting uh, that SS Mel standard, uh, and she's using that as her point of reference. And for Wendy's book, again, it's like Erna Petrie, who kills these uh, these Jewish children and justifies it in her uh, in the investigation after the wars. Her husband was an SS man. Uh, she didn't want to stand behind uh, the Mel. Uh, the SS Mel. She wanted to prove that she had that quote unquote right stuff uh, as well. And so I think uh, that uh, in the East, uh, we see how uh, some of the uh, the gender norms are also for particular uh, individuals, women in this case, how they can be uh, also accepted, if you will, how they can also be redefined. Uh, within the camp system, and I think that that's kind of a that's that that's really a, a, one of those kind of eye-opening moments when you uh, when you see how uh, individuals are again normalizing their behavior on a standard uh, that's related uh, to this overall standard of masculinity and masculine toughness or hardness.
1: And then the corresponding question: What about those people who refuse to drink, and yeah. how are they viewed, and how many of them are there? Yeah, that's a, a, again, that's, a, that's an
0: important part of this story as well, because one of the things that you see in the letters of individuals, whether policemen or testimony uh, that, they, uh, that uh, they have after the war, they give after the war, uh, is that they respond, you, if you chose not to join the group and drink with the group, not only were you saying that you didn't want to drink, but the perception of the group was you were rejecting the group uh, itself. And by implication, you were rejecting the activities that the group was involved in, and so what you see in the cases of some who did, who did uh, in fact uh, refuse to drink or refuse to join these post-killing celebrations, uh, was in fact that they were uh, they were called uh, derogatory names, they were feminized uh, uh, by their uh, by their uh, comrades. And uh, seen as being uh, as seen as being weak, mother's uh, mother's child uh, uh, being one of the uh, one of the less uh, defamatory uh, kind of uh, uh, labels. But I think also what's important, and this again comes back to thinking about the work that Chris Browning did in Police Battalion 101, that those who couldn't participate uh, described their inability to participate, especially in the killing not as a function of their moral revulsion against the acts but that they were too weak right they described themselves as being too weak not not hard enough like their other comrades right and so this is where i think again uh, that we see how these uh, these larger this broader perceptual uh, uh kind of standard if you will the standard of masculinity uh it comes into play uh even amongst those who readily admit that they're not able to attain that standard. So it's, uh, uh, I think that that's, a, that's an important insight, and it ties back in uh, to this discussion we just had of the uh, female SS guards as well. What becomes the hyper-masculine standard uh, that is going to be used to judge uh, those who participate and how those who choose not to are going to be seen? And the answer, I think, uh, to the second part of your question is, how big a number is that uh, if you look at what Ollendorf, uh, Otto Ollendorf, who was a, uh, a commander for Einsatzgruppe D, uh, talks about after the war in one of his uh, interrogations, when asked, well, what was the number of those who refused to participate? And he's, he uses a term, it was a very few men, uh, right? He doesn't say it wasn't widespread. The other thing that uh, I found really interesting is Karl Kretschmer, who was a member of uh, the Einsatzgruppe uh, after the war, Klaus uh, Lanzmann tries to get him involved in a conversation because Kretschmer uh, wrote uh, several very notorious letters uh, uh, to his uh, to his loved ones about his participation. And after the war, one of the things uh, that Lanzmann tries to ask him, well, you know, was it hard to become involved in in, in these actions? And uh, Kretschmer just kind of says, "Yeah." For the new, for the new, the newbies, for the, for the newbies it was. But what one sees is that that process uh, of acclimation to murder, uh, can be a relatively brief process of normalization into the act of murder. So those who start the day, uh, finding it difficult to do that, uh, by the eighth or ninth, uh, uh group that's come up, they become acclimated and and murders become normalized or the second or third operation that they're involved in a uh, killing operation by that time it's become normalized so i think that that's that's also uh, an interesting dynamic that we see
1: so this is a book addressed at a specific moment in time and a specific conflict what what questions does this open up for genocide studies as a whole what what research paths are suggested by this book.
0: Yeah, I uh, one of the things that uh, struck me in doing the book is I looked at uh, the issue of Rwanda and mm. the Rwandan genocide. And uh, one of the things that as I was uh, looking at that issue, uh, the incorporation of alcohol and ce- celebratory ritual, music, song, sexual assault, uh, I think there are some really interesting parallels. Uh, from the way in which uh, we see alcohol and intoxicants used, celebration used uh, in the case of Rwanda. Uh, I think also uh, looking at the Balkans, uh, especially with uh, respect to the issue of sexual assault uh, and drinking, uh, there's definitely some parallels there. But I think more broadly speaking, this idea of metaphorical intoxication I think uh, gives us really some insights into maybe thinking about this broader arc of uh, genocide and mass atrocity, uh, mass killing uh, and the way, in which, um, the way in which this othering uh, of the victim and the perpetrator's own kind of control, if you will, intoxication with control over others. Uh, I think we see that there. Uh, I think to a certain a- effect, and I, I talk about this in the book a little bit, is if we look at the Antebellum South in the United States as well, this idea of um, having control over others—in this case, uh, uh, slavery—right that uh, one sees that uh, the use of flogging or the use of rituals of humiliation, uh, one can see some of that same dynamic uh, that we uh, that I talk about in the book uh, as well. So I think that this this book hopefully will uh, provide. Uh, a starting point maybe for looking at some of these other incidences uh, and maybe provide a certain way of thinking about some of the social science literature that uh, I've included in this book to uh, uh, to apply it to some of these other cases as well.
1: Well, you've been very generous with your time. So um, I always say- End with the same two questions. Uh, One of them, we're recording this just after our respective semesters ended, um, and which in theory means that I have time to read uh, or watch. I'm not sure theory is actually reality, but we'll pretend for the moment it is. Um, What book would you, or movie, or 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 literature? What would you suggest to the audience uh, uh, that they should read that was meaningful to you as 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 a result of the study? Yeah, I uh, I definitely
0: think uh, some of your audience may be familiar with the uh, uh, the film The Gray Zone, which looks at Auschwitz and the Zonda Commando. I think that that's a uh, you see some of this dynamic reflected uh, in, uh, in in the movie itself. Uh, as I mentioned uh, uh, earlier, I, I mentioned Claude uh, Claude Lansman and uh, Shoah, which is nine hours long. If you uh, if you look at it though there's a lot in there i think that uh, uh that also is reflected in this book and one of the uh one of the advantages about being at the holocaust museum on a fellowship was that there are hundreds of hours of outtakes uh from shoah that are actually available uh at the uh, at the holocaust museum in dc and uh, there's some really fascinating information that is available in those outtakes that is not available actually in the film version now your listeners probably, for the most part, aren't going to be able to uh, to make the trip to D.C., but I think looking at Lanz Manchoa, uh, looking at the gray zone would be, uh, I think, very uh, one, uh, obviously a fictionalized account, uh, but the other very much based on witness and perpetrator testimony uh, is really uh, the way to get in an insight into some of these issues that I've talked about.
1: And the second question is maybe not a kind question because— at least in theory, academics have a life. Although again, I'm not sure theory and practice are real. Um, what are you working on now? I'm trying to think a little bit more
0: about another very dark subject. One of the things that uh, one of the things that struck me uh, in uh, in writing this book, and I use the term in the book "recreational violence" or "spectacular violence," uh, is um, what does it mean? to be involved in recreational violence. In other words, to stage activities of violence against, uh, against others as a kind of sport or as a kind of uh, amusing activity. And uh, that to me is one question that's still kind of, if you will, rattling around in my, uh, in my brain a little bit is uh, what does that mean? And are there other examples? So to go back to my earlier uh, work of looking at the, uh, the Nazi East versus the U.S. West, and thinking about how can we look at maybe some of these concepts in comparative perspective, I think is really something that I'm uh, that I'm thinking more and more about, uh, and that's that's where I am right now. So I'm not sure where that's going to go, but that's uh, that's uh, that's the uh, that's the answer for now.
1: We've been talking to Edward Westerman about his book, Drunk on Genocide, Alcohol and Mass Murder in Nazi Germany, published by Cornell University Press. Ed, thanks so much for being with us. And uh, it sounds like a fascinating project. And when you're done, uh, I hope you'll be back on the show to talk about it.
0: Thanks so much, Kelly. I appreciate the invitation to be here today.